very often you'd find brilliant people who would get their 30 second elevator pitch and convey a burst of intense, complex information as fast as they could. And sometimes it was beautifully presented, you know, really well uh, delivered, but complex. And if your message is complex, then third parties will never pass it on. They'll never spread the word about you. And your reputation will only go as far as whoever's in earshot. And most of them will probably quickly be overwhelmed by the complexity of what you say, even if they might actually qualify as a customer or an investor or a colleague. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is a regular listener to the Connected Leadership Podcast, which I am absolutely delighted to, to say. He's also a former client of mine that I really enjoyed working with uh, just before the pandemic, a couple of years before the pandemic, and we've stayed in touch ever since. He's a former captain of the Royal Marines. Uh, we worked together when he was the chief executive officer of Level 39, which is a key incubator hub for tech uh, businesses uh, as part of Canary Wharf Group in London. Uh, and he also spent 10 years building one of the world's first crowdfunding platforms, which is where his interest in network structures began. He's now running his own consultancy, and I want to really dig into uh, not just what he's doing now, but what he's learned in those roles in the Marines, in Level 39. He was also with UK Trade and Industry for a couple of years, um, and, and what he's learned about communications between teams in organizations and those internal networks. Because it's something we, we talk about on and off quite a bit in the Connected Leadership Podcast, but it's time to shine a spotlight on it. So welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, Ben Brabin. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to join you. It's a pleasure to have you. It's been a while. I promised you would come on the show um, and uh, I'm delighted you're joining me now. Uh, so let, let's... Um, we're going to talk about communication be between teams as our, our core topic. But uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the introduction that you, you've, you've mentioned to me as well is that you were involved in building one of the world's first crowdfunding platforms early this century, in the first, first decade of this century. Um, and that stimulated your interest in, in network structures. So I probably got that to thank for you bringing me in to work with you and the team at, at Level 39 uh, way back when. So... Maybe to share a little bit about that and how did how did it come about that you started working on that business and, and how did it enhance your understanding of networks? Well, it's a long time ago. You're right. This is cast your mind back to the, uh, the early years, early hours even of the, uh, of the new millennium. And uh, I had recently left the Marines. I spent five years as a Royal Marine and uh, it's a wonderful environment, but it's also quite uh, isolated in many respects from the rest of society. So people like me making a transition are often sort of trying to figure out where they fit and you know who they know and what they need to figure out to, to make sense of civilian life. Transition for military veterans is often quite a challenge. Uh, I was very lucky. I got a job uh, with an investment bank, JP Morgan, and came to London and was uh, in the year 2000 learning as fast as I could. As I was doing that, of course, the dot-com bubble was reaching its peak and it burst that summer, which was an amazing thing to witness from inside an investment bank. Uh, I was really keen to see what this technology would transform. It was increasingly clear what wasn't going to be working. But um, I met up with a, 
an old friend of mine who I actually started commando training with the same day. Um, and unlike me, he'd grown up with technology. So his father was one of the team at CERN that developed the World Wide Web. And um, he'd grown up with it in a way I hadn't because I grew up on a farm. And uh, so I was fascinated to learn what this new technology could do to connect people. Um, and Matt and I uh, sat down over the course of a week and um, came up with a series of business plans, how we could use this technology, this internet, uh, to, um, to create a business. And we realized that there were quite a lot of organizations that didn't know how to connect with their key stakeholders. And the example we knew best uh, was charity fundraising. So we set up the first crowdfunding platform for people to raise money uh, for sponsored events, like running marathons or climbing mountains. And what, of course, we could see was that outside the perimeter of the charity, there was this really vibrant network centered on a runner or a climber, but then bringing in all of their friends, their contacts. And uh, we were fascinated to see both how we could capture that and enable it by making it possible for people to make their payments online um, and uh, to report all the information associated with charities. So early on in the new millennium, I spent my time studying network theory and figuring out how we could help charities to capture not only all that money, but all that information and insight they could get. And um, I'm delighted to say that model became the norm. It, it's it's funny hearing that because over the years, I've said many times in my talks, and I remember, I mean, most of the work we did together at Level 39 was was mentoring with, with the senior leadership team, but I also did one or two talks to the team as a whole. So I'm beginning to think in my mind, did I say this in a talk at Level 39? But I used to... Uh, use the, I used to use the comparison about how we used to collect money for charity and how we do now um, and the difference between um, going up to someone in person and saying, will you sponsor me and waving an envelope uh, and a blank sheet of paper under their nose uh, or sending out a link um, and just you know posting it onto your social media. I think in those days, if you, you were doing this in the early 2000s, you're before LinkedIn, you're before Facebook. Um, so people would have been sharing that link still directly. So you were bridging, you were bridging that gap from where it is now. Um, but it, the reason I say that is it's, it's when I've shared that story, I will say, how did we used to collect sponsorship? And people look at me blankly because they've either forgotten or we have got probably two generations of people who have never seen someone walking around with a brown envelope, a pen and a sheet of paper collecting pledges. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, you're part of that movement that made a big, uh, a, a big impact on the way we do things in the world. Uh, let, let's dig a little bit deeper in terms of your, your early exposure to network structures and how they work, because whenever I talk to anyone either in the military or with a military background, I'm always fascinating, but fascinated by how the hierarchy of the military uh, influences uh, how people interact and engage with each other. And it's often not what I expect to hear, the answers, um, and also the role that networks play there as well. So uh, well, let's take those three first stages of your career, the, the, the uh, Royal Marines, uh, the crowd, uh, JP Morgan and the crowdfunding platform. What would you say were, were the uniformities in network structure across those, the similarities? And where would you say those three environments really differ? Well, that's a brilliant and really rather difficult to answer question. I've never, <laughs> never thought of comparing all three at the same time. So I guess let's look for some commonalities. I think um, in all three, the importance of listening is hard to overstate. Um, 
you know, in each of those, I suppose, uh, whether you're uh, um, learning your trade as a, a marine or as an investment banker or building a business, uh, there's an awful lot more around you that you don't understand than you do. Uh, and so gaining access to people who've got answers or insights or useful information that contributes to those answers seems to me the kind of key unifying skill. So the ability, in other words, to use your network for information gathering and information analysis, um, getting wisdom, not just data. Uh, that, I guess, would be the commonality. Um, in terms of differences, well, they're, <laughs> they're perhaps rather easier to pick. Um, the, well, there are many fascinating things about being a soldier, but... Um, but one of them, of course, is that you are um, you're operating with licenses which are not normal. You have um, a mandate which is exceptional and has to be very, very carefully controlled. Um, I suppose you could say that investment banking is a regulated environment. And when you're uh, using other people's data, uh, you have to be uh, very careful and protected too. In other words, each of them involves a different degree of responsibility. I was looking for difference. Actually, they have that in common too. Um, so what's the difference? What's the biggest difference? It's probably easier for somebody on the outside to tell you, because of course I've spent my entire life trying to find the commonalities. <laughs> um, but I guess in all of them, I've come across people who I've liked and admired. So for me, um, although they've been very different, they've had that in common most of all. I, I think that the, one of the reasons I asked you the question is that whenever I've interviewed people from military background, um, including for Just Ask, where, where I interviewed a, a, a former New, New Zealand, um, uh, I want to say Marine, but I'm sure I've called Dion a Marine before and he called me up on it because he, he wasn't, but, but for, former uh, New Zealand uh, military, um, uh, that actually, as an outsider, I would expect there to be huge differences but there don't seem to be. And there is a lot about supporting your colleagues, supporting your friends, being there for each other. A lot of the internal politics still plays its role. Um, and the hierarchical structure is there, but it's not as all, per all pervasive as, as we might imagine from the outside. Would that be a fair observation from an, you know, from an outsider? I think that's very fair, yes. I mean, clearly there is a hierarchy and there's more sort of, there's more labels that, that express that. Um, but in fact, of course, what really goes on, as you said, is it's a political environment. It just has to be a political environment which has the ability to snap into a much more inflexible environment under certain unusual conditions. Do you think that you being a former captain in the Marines made a difference to how you approach being an entrepreneur and how it made a difference to, to how you approach being a CEO or a COO? Well, I think that, that perhaps the sort of abiding residue um, uh, is, is a higher degree of comfort with uncertainty than many people. Um, and that, I think, is extremely useful for an entrepreneur, and it's pretty useful for a leader in most environments. Um, of course, you need to be able to provide sufficient reassurance to people around you under conditions of uncertainty. Uh, and let's face it, we're none of us short of uncertainty to manage now. Um, but I guess, I, I, I think that... Um, one of the things that people often assume about the armed forces is that it's uh, it's very much about uh, simple communications with each other, shouting orders at each other. That's very much the exception. <laughs> it's much more of a collaborative environment, and that I think is you know pervasive throughout every role I've had since. Okay, um, now I, I I think that's that's really fascinating to hear, and I'm I'm, I'm really picking up on what you said earlier and what I've heard many times about the difficulties of um, 
for people leaving the military, the difficulties they find in, in establishing a new role uh, outside and adapting to that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was invited years ago to work with The List. I don't know if The List is still around, but it was a network for uh, people leaving the military and, and finding new roles in, in civilian life. Um, that adapting to us uncertainty, I think, is a, a brilliant and fascinating answer because, as you say, we're surrounded by it at the moment. If you were talking to someone who doesn't have that military background, who's in that uh, leadership role now, and they need to deal with uncertainty, uh, both within their organisation, which I think we're going to see a lot of over the next uh, couple of years. Um, We have seen a lot of, but I think we're going to see more of, uh, but also the uncertainty in the markets and, and, and elsewhere. What could you share with them based on your learnings from your military career that will help them to adapt to that uncertainty? Well, I think there's a danger, perhaps, of, of talking about uncertainty uh, from a, more from an emotional than a practical and, and, and theoretical point of view. So I'd highlight that it isn't just that, if you like, you can expect veterans to be level-headed, although you usually can. Um, it's more than that. As a, as a soldier or sailor or um, if you're in the Air Force, you're encouraged to contingency plan, to analyze the what-ifs not, what happens if we don't go with plan A? What if we don't go with plan B? What if something enormous and compromising happens? What are our fallback positions? And that ability to contingency plan, is a, it's, a, it's a skill, it's a learned skill and a set of habits, which you'll find deeply inculcated in veterans who after all, have been very, very highly trained. When I was leaving, I was advised by um, an executive search um, specialist that um, I'd had more invested in training me in general management skills than you'd find even with the biggest blue chip in the world, 15 months of training. And as he pointed out, very, very little of that indeed was to do things that you're not allowed to do in civilian life. Um, Only a few hours perhaps of lethal training. The rest was all about teams, communication, planning, analysis, engagement with other stakeholders. All of those skills are transferable. And so I would suggest when you're looking at hiring a veteran, consider that you're hiring someone who's had a kind of training which none of your other colleagues are likely to have had to have afforded. Um, and it's, um, it's not just uh, the ability to be level-headed, it's the ability to help you and your organisation through challenges which may be coming at you faster than you're used to. Do you think that there is enough training in those types of skills in uh, civilian organisations? Well, I think there's a trade-off, isn't it? There are lots of other skills we must learn, but certainly for organisations that want... Uh, in their mix, so not as their universal standard, but among their team, they want people who can be those conveyors of confidence, the people who are not necessarily bounding out and creating new brokered relationships, but are achieving closure inside the teams, people who are pulling the culture of your organization together. That's what veterans do in cultures which need to be able to deal with external tumult and challenge. So my advice would be, Hire veterans. <laughs> I, I, I want to let's use this to to start really diving into our theme for the conversation: this communication between teams and leading multiple teams, which might be a better way of uh, of putting it. I love that phrase, conveyors of confidence, uh, and I, I I I like the focus on the role, uh, that role of just keeping everyone 
on the right track getting the culture right amongst the teams. Because I guess when you are leading multiple teams, one of the first things you want to do is make sure everyone is on the same path, working together, uh, tied together and, and positively moving forward. And that's a challenge. Um, so tell me more about your conveyors of confidence. Who are they? What's their role? How do you find them? Do you find them? Do they find you? Do you, do you recruit people with that in mind? Well, this is such a tricky area, I think, because it doesn't say conveyor of confidence on anyone's job description. And this is one of the reasons why veterans, among others, often aren't explicitly hired with roles where that's important. Um, and so I think it's a, it, it's a tricky one because it's easy to evaluate, to price people who go out and find us new customers or investors who bring us new technology capabilities, the, the expeditionary characters who go out foraging beyond the organization. It's easy to forget the vital role played by people who bind us all together on the inside. Now, there's a, an old saying that the backbone of the British Army is the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, who spend longer in each part of the organization than anybody else and bind it together, share its history, communicate its habits and its culture. Um, so... If your organization doesn't explicitly recognize the value of this closure role, then I think you're in danger of missing something. Your culture may fit, but it may not flex. So it may not fit for long. And if you have a culture which can adapt, it's likely to be because you have long-serving people in key roles who just keep you all together. And it's very hard to tell exactly what it is they're doing, but they're the kind of collective memory of an organization. Have you ever either recruited someone with that need in mind and feeling that they would fit and bring that to the table or identified people who, who have that that collective memory ingrained in them because they've been around so long and they, they really understand the culture of, of the organisation and uh, shifted their role uh, to make better use uh, of, of that ability to, to convey confidence to everyone else and convey the culture? Well, I don't think I've, although I recommend other people to do it, I don't think I've, I've followed my own advice here because it's very hard to justify hiring somebody for that reason. However, when I have hired people and found that they have those skills, I've done everything I can to uh, enable them to be productive in that, even if that means lightening their responsibilities in other areas. Um, and certainly, for example, at level 39, one, one person springs to mind who was truly exceptional at this. Um, and she was, uh, she was a source of insight which I couldn't get through anywhere else because she listened to everybody. Everybody had time for her and she had time for everybody. And I was keen to, to protect that time for her because it was the best possible use of it. She had many skills beyond this, of course, but uh, this was where she could make the biggest difference to the culture of that organization. And how did you channel that? Well, mainly, <laughs> I just listened <laughs> because I could see that she could do things that no one else could do uh, in involving and including people who might otherwise feel peripheral. So I, I guess I, I'd highlight two things. First of all, funny enough, she isn't anymore, but she was then a smoker, which gave her access to a kind of network which was totally separate from my network. I moved kind of vertically, I suppose, and maybe she moved horizontally. Um, but while smoking, while kind of um, huddling away from the rain under shelters, she'd meet people who were senior executives in banks and people who were responsible for cleaning the retail areas. And she'd be talking to all of them and listening to all of them. 
and it gave her a breadth of insight, uh, which I was um, a big admirer of. Um, and uh, and she's given up smoking now. I'm delighted to say, but she's <laughs> she continues to be a fantastic uh, builder of, of of relationships and ecosystems. Um, and I you know I, I heartily recommend if you find people like that, do everything you can to support them. Other than supporting them as with smoking on an ongoing basis, obviously. That, <laughs> um, but but we should stress for people that don't know Level Thirty Nine, and I touched on it in the introduction that it's Level Thirty Nine of Canary Wharf Tower, which is the hub of Docklands. So of course, you you say she was smoking with people from uh, investment banks and retail spaces. You've got floors and floors of offices all with different businesses a massive retail mall at the at the ground floor areas um so you will have that whole range and i remember writing a blog uh, many years ago when scotland uh, was the first country in the uk to introduce a smoking ban in pubs and restaurants and there was a new word that um, came out called smirting and smirting was what was happening with the smokers flirting with each other when they were outside and yeah i i don't suggest that people go out and and smoke with a view to either meeting their next partner or networking with the right people um but it, it does it, it creates that space for those extra conversations but let's focus instead on rather than the smoking let's focus on the listening because you talked about that earlier you said that was the the the, the most important commonality between your, your your three roles it's something that i i talk about time and time and time again and the power of it so uh, tell me a little bit more about in your experience what makes someone a good listener uh, and why that plays such a role when trying to build the right type of communication between teams in an organisation? Well, curiosity seems to be very important. Um, it does seem to be the kind of common characteristic of most of the people I've met who are very successful. I can think of one or two exceptions, but they really are exceptional. Um, so curiosity seems to be the sort of the, the, what drives the, uh, the will to listen. But I think what comes about as a result is a reduction of communication. The best communicators seem to be the people who can boil off all of the unnecessary stuff. A very common pattern I noticed, bear in mind as uh, head of level 39, I was host to about 200 different startups. Very often you'd find brilliant people who would get their 30 second elevator pitch and convey a burst of intense, complex information as fast as they could. And sometimes it was beautifully presented, you know, really well uh, delivered, but complex. And if your message is complex, then third parties will never pass it on. They'll never spread the word about you. And your reputation will only go as far as whoever's in earshot. And most of them will probably quickly be overwhelmed by the complexity of what you say, even if they might actually qualify as a customer or an investor or a colleague. So it seems to me the best listeners are often also the best uh, simplifiers. They express what matters in simple language that anyone can understand and almost anyone can care about. That's the main advantage of being a listener. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring.
you know, I always talked about the 10 year old test, you know, turn to a 10 year old and tell them what you want to express and get them to repeat it back to you. Because if they can't, your message is too complex for anyone else because they're, they haven't got the bandwidth to try and understand what you're saying, uh, which is really important. How much do you think overcomplicated messages are causing uh, fra um, uh, fractures and, uh, and dissent between different teams and, and creating a breakdown of communication? And, and as a leader, how do you prevent that happening? Well, uh, this, is a, this is, of course, such a central issue, isn't it? Um, it seems to me that you can't, um, you can't expect everyone to be as good at simplifying as we would all like to be. So you have to make plenty of provision for, for bandwidth. You have to make sure people have plenty of opportunities to communicate, knowing that quite a lot of the time it won't quite work. It'll be a sort of a near miss. But with enough near misses, you eventually get most important messages across. I have, over the summer, I've been having some fun I, uh, I did a um, foundation in machine learning course, and that took me into experimenting with natural language processing. And you can, in fact, now find various free apps online which you can run your messages through, and it will give you a, a reading age, and it'll give you tips about whether they're the wrong kind of words to be understood. And um, and I've enjoyed putting a few historical speeches through it, and a few, yeah. some of the people I work with, some clients of mine, I've shown them how incomprehensible what they consider to be perfectly normal can be for a lay audience. So we should never assume that people start off with all of the assumptions that we have. That's key. Well, I'm just thinking in the UK, we've just finished party conference season where all of the uh, leading political parties have their conferences. I think those apps uh, could be very useful in those environments. I know people are going to be interested in those apps. Do you have the details off the top of your head by any chance of which apps they could look up? Well, so if you look at DaVinci, if you look at OpenAI, so OpenAI is, the, is probably the place to start and you'll find various um, uh, examples you can, um, you can play around with there. And then they're, they're not just natural language processing, they have others as well. So if you want a, a bit of AI fun, go to OpenAI. So is that a website? Is that an app? It is. It's a, it's a website backed by um, the founder of LinkedIn um, and various uh, VCs who are keen to make sure that artificial intelligence is democratically available is that reed hoffman it's back by that's right yes yeah okay so go to open open ai and you'll find things there that sounds really interesting i might have to check that out for my own messages and talks, <laughs> uh, as well when it, when we're looking at people's bandwidth and their ability to understand your message how much of a role does your relationship with that person play does do you feel that a strong relationship increases the bandwidth and if so to what type of extent well i guess this question of a strong relationship to me is absolutely fascinating and uh, we talked a bit earlier about the the, uh, the conveyors of confidence one of the things i've noticed is that people who try and make a direct sales pitch they're depending on one thing which is that they have the credibility to make sure that their message is communicated and believed and that's an awful lot to ask. Uh, so it seems to me that, that it's much better to see if you can create conditions in which people hear your sales message from people who aren't you. So the strength of a relationship is often actually created by what other people who, you, who know both of you are saying to each of you about the other. It gives you a kind of network context. And it's that that drives trust. It isn't, you know, I could tell you anything. Um, especially if the camera was off, I could tell you, you know, I've got a, I've got a new hairstyle. Um, 
and, uh, and, and since we're since this is a audio only, I, I have to take my word for it. There's been no hairstyle on me for many years, um, but I guess uh, it's really the words of others that we believe most of all. So strength of relationship seems to be about creating that mesh rather than simply cold calling people. So what were you doing inside level 39 to ensure that people were building relationships across teams, that they were communicating clearly and effectively across teams, and that you, as a leader of multiple teams in an organization, created a one organization culture? Well, I think um, we, of course, we were in slightly opposition in that we were not actually leading many of the people who depended upon us. So we were influencing rather than controlling a lot of what happened. And I think I can describe two major deliberate interventions. When I arrived at level 39, we as the central team were trying to be the clearinghouse for everything. So every introduction happened through us, all sorts of other practical matters, major and minor, all came through the central team. And the team was overwhelmed. We didn't have the capacity. And more importantly, we didn't even have the expertise for some of that. So recognizing that we should move from that hub and spoke model to a much more active peer-to-peer environment was the first step for me. We needed to make sure, in other words, that lots of people could come in and find their own role without reference to us. That meant mentors, it meant investors, it meant policymakers, it meant a whole rich, rich tapestry of stakeholders. And so we needed to make that possible. That was, a, that was a practical and cultural change. And the thing, the main thing that enabled that was a simple exercise in framing. So rather than trying to have the answers to everybody's questions, uh, our role, and my role in particular, was to essentially set the scene. And that was a communications challenge to explain that what we wanted was brilliant people to come together and that our role was to enable them to achieve the best of what they could in collaboration with the smart people around them. And that, of course, massively reduced our workload, simplified what we had to do, and it meant that the really specialist activity was truly in the hands of experts whose incentives were properly aligned. And it was that that enabled us to simultaneously grow the business by over 70% while cutting its costs by more than 40%. Uh, And I heartily recommend that. The only downside, of course, is that if you're not the hub you don't get to know everything that's going on. There's a part of me that wanted everything to come through <laughs> us, but uh, that was what we had to sacrifice to scale with quality. So, so that was getting out of your own way effectively. Yeah. And, and, and I think you said there were two, two scenarios or two, two changes that you, you wanted to reference. Well, yes, the first was um, very much moving from hub and spoke to peer-to-peer. Right. And the second one was creating the frame. So right. communicating the, the fact that that was the case and inviting people to muck in without needing to refer through us yeah we're talking about leading uh, an organization with multiple teams and making sure everyone's on the same page um that of course doesn't always mean managing down effectively it can also be managing up uh, and i know at level 39 you had a board you reported into so what was your experience of that and of getting them Uh, brought into your vision and also pulling in the same direction as you wanted to go with with the rest of Level 39? Well, it's a fascinating uh, uh, organization in that it sits uh, as part of a property company, Canary Wharf Group, while also seeking to engage simultaneously with early stage technology companies, well-established global financial services businesses, 
and government representatives in trade and investment, in regulation, in all sorts of policy areas. So, um, so the role I had very much involved being um, a go-between uh, and making sure that I was uh, able to communicate the interests and needs and constraints of each of those constituents to each of the others. And um, I think ultimately, uh, while I, I was there for four years um, and I could see tantalizing possibilities, which I was unsuccessful in communicating upwards. So uh, I enjoyed the role very much. Um, but ultimately, I think I did everything I could there because, of course, a property business can be very successful just as a property business. There's no reason why it needs to get involved in innovation necessarily. And while we certainly enabled many companies to achieve fantastic commercial and technical success, um, to me, it's not necessarily obvious that that is something that would normally and naturally fall to a property company. We, it was a, a fantastic experiment, um, but I quite understand why in the long run, uh, management, I think, has been keen to focus on sticking to their knitting, sticking to being a real estate play. Would you change the approach at all if you were back in that space again? Well, you never step in the same river twice, I think, do you? Um, I, uh, I guess I could see all sorts of potential with my background, which was perhaps not obvious to people with a long career in real estate. And they could, I'm sure, see plenty of things that were not obvious to me. Um, so, of course, since I left, I left the week before the first UK lockdown. So quite a lot has changed. And what has fascinated me is how quite a lot of the convening activity that Level 39 made possible at scale is now finding expression in ways which are not constrained by real estate, that don't have to happen in the office. And indeed, that's formed a significant part of my work since. It's helping people understand how to make sure the ecosystem around them delivers maximum value, helps them with their sales growth helps them with their investor access and helps them perhaps above all find and recruit and retain the best people. I, I want to pick up on this, um, this idea that you, you have a particular focus, the innovation focus, they have the property focus. So you've got different goals, different objectives in terms of getting teams working together. This is of often one of the major causes of friction and silos within organizations in, is that different teams are trying to do different things. You know, a classic example would be um, a, a sales team trying to do all they can to drive revenue and investing in doing so, and a finance team trying to cut costs, um, or, or an IT team trying to bring in the best equipment and the finance team. Probably the finance team is the one who, <laughs> who everyone will point their finger at. Um, but how do you how do you get everyone uh, on the same page when they've got differing objectives? How do you create the the, the the balance where people can pull in the same direction? Well, it seems to me that this is a good test of one's ability to simplify. If you can find the kind of the common source that everybody wants to get to. Uh, so, for example, politically speaking at the moment, the word of the day is growth. Uh, for some years, people have focused on words like productivity or sustainability. And very often you can then draw everyone towards that conclusion, even if they've started in very different starting positions. So that's a good illustration, perhaps, of the, the value of having a really simple message that people can converge towards. But then I guess also there is the use of social proof. So certainly something I made extensive use of was finding third parties 
who were able to provide a critical but expert perspective and advise in a way which didn't appear to be partisan. And I found that could be very effective, although, of course, it's not a, it's not a silver bullet. It won't solve every communications challenge. One of the things that I rail, I've railed against for a long time, uh, and I know that you also want to see change in this area, is that if we want people to work together collaboratively in organisations, we have to incentivize them to do so. And existing incentive schemes, to me, tend to be very much focused on the individual and, and recognition for the job that you are specifically employed to do and don't recognize input into supporting other people achieve their objectives um you know as i say it's something i've talked about for a long time without knowing quite what the answer is but i think that you've got some strong ideas about this as well i guess i have and, and of course i'm not sure uh, i understand so that was my uh that was my watch talking to me apologies <laughs> for that i bumped my watch on the desk and it didn't understand what i was saying had That's to happen that. on one of these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your watch needs some help, we can we can cover it later. Um, I, <laughs> it can simplify its message for it because it didn't understand I'll, what I was saying. <laughs> I'll try to get my answer really simple to your question. So one of the things that I think uh, is a as a result of military experience, of course, in the military, a lot of the outcomes you experience are collective. Now, often they're collective punishments. You know, you all suffer as a result of a problem. Uh, sometimes they're collective rewards. Usually, I think probably the balance is on the downside. Um, and that's one of the things that binds people together. Shared adversity is one of the great drivers of cohesion in the armed forces. Um, and so I think it's worth being quite creative about incentive. It's worth considering that you don't have to treat this as a spreadsheet exercise, that it's far more powerful to people if you demonstrate personal interest in what they're doing and why than it is if you... Um, simply go through the motions of adding a point to a score sheet, which might somehow loosely be connected to a financial bonus at year end or might not. Um, it's, um, you, you know, it's an exercise in humanity rather than cash flow management, I think, incentives. And that can lead to all sorts of creative possibility. One of the things I think is a source of huge opportunity for many organizations is, is what's sometimes called um, stochastic distribution. It's of um, surprise benefits. They don't need to be financial, of course, but surprise benefits or recognition, which um, just delight because they're unexpected. Uh, and this, of course, is one of the reasons. You know, lots of games are designed to give this experience, um, lotteries particularly, for example. Um, but it's something which you can employ creatively in all sorts of work environments. And it's vastly more cost-effective than trying to blanket everybody in the same kind of love. Uh, so I heartily recommend organizations take a really fresh look at how they use incentives to encourage the kind of behaviors they want, not just among employees, not just among customers even, but actually more widely in the community of which every company is a part. I think the idea that incentives are human-based rather than spreadsheet-based is so important. Um, we can take them for granted otherwise and we don't value them or we don't feel valued by them, as well as the fact that, that often they incentivize the wrong person. So if, if if I'm working with a sales team, for example, I often get approached by organizations to say, would you come and work with our sales team on referral strategy? And, and particularly in a smaller organization, I would say bring the whole team along, not just the sales team, because I remember years ago, probably two decades ago, standing, giving a talk in a printers in East London and saying, 
you know, you all, how many of you live in the local community? And everyone did. I said, you all know people have printing needs. It's not just the salespeople who do. Uh, but it's creating that right environment for, for it to happen. And, and similarly, uh, with the currencies uh, exchange in the city, um, I did the same thing. I said everyone should come, not just the sales team. And the financial director, a director, board member of the company, had never referred before because he hadn't thought of doing so because it wasn't his job. Um, and, and it's that communication, that simple, effective communication you were talking about and incentivizing people or recognizing it. I think what you're talking about is recognize and reward rather than incentive, um, reflective um, hindsight rather than upfront. If you do this, I'll dangle this carrot. And I think that changes motivations, doesn't it? I think you're right. Absolutely. So, so Ben, tell us uh, a little bit more about what you're doing now, because you're you've left that that uh, that corporate space, uh, and you're really focusing on your on your uh, take on network processes and your obsession with that um, uh, in your consultancy business. So, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, thank you. Yes, so my business is called Amity Path, and uh, I guess I help people particularly work through three themes. The first one is deliberate network design and development. So very often it seems that organizations have uh, simply sort of organically expanded who they know without deliberate planning and intent. And it seems to me sensible not to go out with a kind of cold call approach, even to go to networking events and sort of collect business cards, but instead to organize your approach to the community around you in a way which is deliberate in that you know whether you're looking for customers or investors or building relationships with regulators or whatever it might be. And then you figure who else matters to them? What, what, what part of the pond are they swimming in? And how can I make sure that I don't just go and pitch them, but that I get to know their environment, the people and the businesses and organizations around them. So that's stage one is, is deliberate approach to network design and development. A second thing I help organizations with, which really helps enable that, is this radical simplification of messaging. How do you make sure that your message can be enthusiastically communicated by a seven-year-old? And you don't have to be a, a, a PhD scientist to, uh, to understand the pitch. You may still need that pitch for occasions when you are addressing a PhD scientist, but there are an awful lot more people who will just take a short snippet and share it among friends. And that can be really useful to you. And then the third theme is incentives, as you say, rewards, being creative about how you can radically increase your reach. Because once you've got a message which a seven-year-old can pass around, the next question you should ask is, why should they? Because if they do, then it's possible you'll be getting a whole new rich seam of introductions and opportunities because you won't be relying on the same relatively limited network to bring new relationships to you. And again, I guess that's going back to the smoker example. If you can make sure there are people who are hearing about you who would never normally hear about you or your competitors, then you'll be building trust. You'll be building reputation in places where no one knows you have any competitors. Sometimes when no one even knows that there's a thing that you can fix, but when they find out, they'll be delighted. So those are the three areas I help organizations with. Deliberate network development, a radical simplification of messaging, and making sure that you're using incentives in a way which is creative enough to give your message the legs, the reach it deserves. 
Fantastic, Ben. Uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up. It's been too long since we've we've had a conversation. So one of the the, the beauties of doing the podcast is it, not that I need the excuse, but it it gives me the excuse to reach out and uh, and catch up with people. Uh, it was always a pleasure to work with you at Level Thirty Nine. Um, and listen, we're in the same space, so we're going to have lots more conversations going forward as well. So thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Andy. So thanks so much to, to Ben for, for joining me. It's such an important area um, and Ben and my views on it really do overlap hugely, um, which I'm pleased to, to hear as we work together and I mentored him for so long. <laughs> um, and I hope that you got some really great takeaways from that because I think there were some very practical ideas um, as well as really interesting stories that Ben shared. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as ever, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review it and share it let people know where to find us on the connected leadership podcast i have been out networking with speakers from all over the world at the global speakers summit in recent days and i've been lining up some great guests for future episodes of the connected leadership podcast so as they used to say on the radio don't turn that dial stay with the connected leadership podcast i'll see you again here soon Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.